Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode number 19 of the Scottish History Podcast. My name is Owen Innes and this week we're going to be talking about one of my favourite subjects uh, in relation to Scotland. We're going to be talking about whisky. Um, now, of course, you know, I think uh, we're we're all wanting to hear stories of Scotland's past and things like that. But what I'm going to be doing from sort of now on is to kind of really focus on some of the kind of lighter hearted things and then we'll work our way, you know, so every so often there will be a big, uh, a big story. Um, I'm going to be working on ones that have been suggested. So we've got the Highland clearances, uh, even just a, a podcast based around Edinburgh and things. What I'll maybe be doing though is taking stuff like Edinburgh, Glasgow, the cities of Scotland and maybe making them into a series uh, of podcasts um, I think you can do that in some sort of way you know so this will be the first series so to speak um, and then we'll then we'll do specific ones about specific regions and things like that but one that has been very highly requested is of course the Highland Clearances so I will get onto that within the next couple of weeks um, a little update with how things are going at the moment I'm currently um, building a kind of studio in the spare room of my flat so it's been I've been here for two years I've been planning on doing it for two years so we're going to get around to it uh, fairly soon uh, hopefully within the next week or so um, in two weeks time I'm actually off work for an entire week so I, I certainly plan on doing a lot of stuff then sitting and writing some episodes um, and with episodes like the one that I've got for you today, it didn't take me very long to write it at all because it's all kind of in my head already. When it comes to stuff like the Highland Clearances and stuff, I want to do it justice and I want to make sure that you get the right information there. So bear with me on that one. You've all been incredibly kind in waiting for various podcasts and stuff, but I just wanted to get one out for you this week. I'm, and I'm really hoping that you enjoy it. Whether or not you enjoy whiskey or not, um, to me, it doesn't really matter 
because I've taken people who are teetotalers on whiskey tours to whiskey distilleries. They find the process absolutely um, amazing. Uh, I'm the same as well. I never used to be a whiskey drinker. I was 30 years old when I sat down and drank my first single malt whiskey and enjoyed it. I used to hate whiskey. I mean, bourbon, Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, these sorts of things. I used to love those type of whiskies uh, with a little lemonade. Yeah, sue me. I'm weird. Um, but when it comes to whiskey, I used to hate the stuff. Then I found a good one. Then I found a better one. So even if you don't like whiskey just now, um, I will be doing... I want to kind of do maybe a monthly kind of bonus episode where basically um, I just sit down with one of my favourite whiskies and and either talk to you, I might do it live, I could do it as a podcast. You put down in the uh, in the comments below on whatever it is that you're listening to or, uh, you know, on the Facebook page or whatever, send me a recommendation. Would you like it to be a live thing just once a, once a month where we can sit down and, uh, you know, we can have a little chat and uh, and I'll introduce you to one of my sort of favourite whiskies um, once a month. I don't have very many of them, uh, you know, so that would maybe be... I've maybe got a year's worth of once a month. I've maybe got about 12 or so. Anyway, folks, I digress. Let's get into today's episode. And again, today's episode is all about whiskey. So the term whiskey is the anglicised version of the old Gallic word for water. So it basically just means water. In Latin, however, the term for distilled alcohol, of which whiskey is referred to, was aqua vitae, which basically means the water of life. And whiskey's kind of taken this on. So some people refer to whiskey as aqua vitae as well. So the water of life, and let me assure you of this, whiskey certainly brings life to any party that it gets introduced to. So there are traditionally two separate spellings of the word whiskey. Now we'll so we'll start off here. So, many whiskies that are made in the US or in Ireland are, they tend to be spelled W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. So, there's an E in there. That's the most important part. There are a couple of exceptions to this, however. There's no specific rule behind it, however. So, Maker's Mark for example, which I think is a bourbon, um, again made in the United States, Maker's Mark is referred to as a whiskey, um, W-H-I-S-K-Y, so no E. So there's no particular rule as to how you spell whiskey, except when you're referring to Scotch whiskey or a whiskey made elsewhere. So the, 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 we are quite particular about it. But basically, if you're referring to most US or Irish whiskies, it's going to be spelt with the E. So, apart from that, or aside from that, all whisky made outside of these countries, including Scotland, drop the E completely. So we have it W-H-I-S-K-Y. So that could be whisky made anywhere else in the world, which includes Scotland. So that could be Japan, could be Sweden. Germany, 
England. Could be anywhere else in the world, really, aside from the US and Ireland, that spell whiskey without the E. However, of course, we're not here to talk about whiskey from anywhere else except the whiskey made in Scotland. So just remember, though, when you are talking about your favourite Scotch whiskey, to spell it correctly. So say it with me. W H I S K Y. No E. So Scotch, as you can probably tell by now, is whiskey made in Scotland. However, never call a Scottish person a Scotch person, please. This can be seen as a derogatory term. We do not like being called Scotch people. We are not the Scotch people from Scotchland. Not everybody is like, or sorry, not everybody likes whiskey. So, you know, for example, I never used to be a Scotch person. Now I am a Scotch person because I like Scotch whiskey. But you would never refer to me as a Scotchman or a Scotch person. Uh, so we're not made from whiskey. Essentially, though, you know, there are a few prefixes which, you know, you can use the term Scotch for. Uh, so Scotch tape, for example, but that's the brand. You've also got um, what somebody said to me on a tour once, uh, butter scotch. Um, I don't think that's traditionally from Scotland. Uh, but of course, one of our other sort of famous exports, the Scotch egg. Um, to be technical about it, though, most Scottish people do come from Scotch eggs. Uh, and if you get that, then, of course, you're having a little chuckle uh, to that one. Uh, so the first record of whiskey in Scotland. Whiskey had been made elsewhere in the world long before this, but the first record of it is in 1494 in what was known as the Exchequer Rolls and it indicates malt being sent to a friar called John Cor, C-O-R, uh, to make aquavitae. That's what the roll said, uh, which was being used as medicine at the time. So, most whiskey that was, or most distilled alcohol that was being made at the time, tended to be made by monks in monasteries. In 1506, up uh, the ways from me in Dundee, James the Fourth of Scots purchased a large amount of whiskey due to his liking for the spirit. He he was uh, a bit of a whiskey drinker himself. From then it appears as though distilling moved away from the monasteries and into people's homes and farmsteadings as monks started to move away from the monasteries uh, into a sort of more independent role uh, outside of the monastery. In 1608, the world's first and still to this day oldest whisky distillery opened over the water in Ireland. It is called the Old Bushmills Distillery. Quite a nice wee whisky they make there. In 1707 and the Union of Scottish and English Parliaments, the taxes for whisky rose dramatically. And in 1725, the English introduced a further malt tax, which forced the Scots to start distilling illegally. Mainly the distilling would happen at night or during the moonshine, therefore given as the term moonshine. 
This was to prevent the tax men from being able to see the smoke and vapour being given off by the stills um, making the whisky. At one point as well, it is estimated that over half of the whisky that was being produced in Scotland at one time was being done so illegally. In 1823, the Excise Act was passed that once again legalised distillation in Scotland, but for a fee. Highland distilleries tend to pay higher fees than lowland distilleries. I know of a distillery that although distills in the Highlands, its maturation warehouses are uh, literally across the road in the lowlands. This was due to a very kind taxman back in the day and said distillery gets a tax break due to this. From 1920 until 1933 in the US, prohibition was introduced, banning all sales of alcohol. Whiskey, however, was exempt if prescribed by a doctor. For this reason, the popular Walgreens pharmacy stores in the United States rose from just 20 to over 400 in that 13-year period. So how is whiskey made? Now, I'm going to be predominantly from here talking about single malt whiskies. I will explain different types of whisky that you can normally get in Scotland or other whiskies which are referred to as Scotch whiskies. But this is the process of making a single malt whisky. So most whisky is made from using uh, is made using large copper kettles called stills. Copper is used to remove any sulfur-based compounds from the finished drink, which would make the drink unpleasant. So to make a single malt whisky, you only need three ingredients: water, yeast, and malted barley. So the first one, not, most people have heard of barley, but not many people know about malted barley. So malted barley, um, you take uh, water, so water is added to the barley and spread on a malting floor and turned every so often to allow germination to take place. After three or so days, the barley is then dried, either with hot air or via a peat-fueled fire. Now, if you've not heard of Pete before, Pete isn't a guy that lives down the road. Pete is spelled P-E-A-T. Pete is basically the very early formations of coal. It's a few layers underneath your normal um, mud layer in your garden. Um, however, it only tends to form in very muddy, uh, sorry, very boggy places. So out on marshes and things like that. Uh, so basically it's all of the mulch, so things like dead leaves, branches and bark and um, reeds and grass, everything that starts to uh, decompose down into the ground. Millions of years will pass by and it will solidify and turn into what we know as coal. Um, however, the peat, just a few layers underneath, it's quite a spongy, springy sort of um, thing. So we dig that out of the ground and then we leave it for a few days for it to dry. Believe it or not, we leave it outside in Scotland to dry. Someone explain how that makes any sense. But essentially we just leave it out to dry and then when you take a flame to it, you know, a match or, or a lighter obviously nowadays, you take a flame to it and uh, and it burns nice and evenly, nice and slowly. And uh, yeah, so they used to use peat fires um, in houses 
but in terms of the whiskey industry that's where you'll find most of the peat fires these days so when the peat fire dries out the malt the malt itself retains the smoky uh, well basically sorry not even retains the smoky it retains the smoke from that fire in the barley grain itself and then in the finished whiskey article you'll have quite a smoky flavor going on there Traditionally, a lot of these smoky whiskies tend to be from Isla, I-S-L-A-Y. Once again, if you're pronouncing it Islay, it's not Islay, it's Isla. Again, say it with me, Isla. Uh, or Campbellton uh, on the west coast of Scotland. Um, that's not to say they are only exclusively from these places. That is wrong. You can get um, smoky whiskies from the lowlands and elsewhere. Again, though, that's all just on how they dry out the barley. So the now dried barley is added to even more water and is slowly heated, forming what's known as mash. And finally, yeast is added to begin the fermentation of this mash. Once fermented, again between three and four days later, the liquid resembles beer and it sits around the six, between six and seven percent alcohol by volume mark which is roughly for those of you that don't deal with abv and deal in proof you're talking between 12 and 14 proof so when i'm talking abv you simply double it and that's where you get your proof measure from this beer is then pumped into a copper still which is boiled now bear in mind that alcohol boils at a lower temperature than water now, as the beer starts to boil in the bottom of the still, vapour starts to rise to the top of the still. Now, on the top of the still, it's not an open still, okay? So, this is all harnessed, everything is harnessed. So, the vapour rises to the top of the still and it goes into the neck of the still, um, which again is usually made from copper. So, it starts to rise, it goes into the neck of the still or the arm of the still and it starts to flow down. Now this arm of the still is usually surrounded in a condenser. So to simplify it as much as possible, so you've got the vapour rises up into the arm of the still, and it starts to kind of float down, it's being forced down with all of the new vapour coming in, forced through the arm, and it eventually reaches the condenser, which is essentially the arm the copper arm is surrounded by really, really cold water. That then condenses that vapour back into liquid. So the liquid then starts running down and into the um, uh, the spirit chamber. So basically what we've done is we've taken a 6 and 7, between 6 and 7% beer and we've turned it into a spirit. So the, so the beer in the bottom of the still... Um, is now essentially useless. We we tend to take that, which I think is called grist, we tend to take that and we ship it off uh, to the cows in the field. So the cows tend to get fed off of that, uh, off of the barley and stuff that's which is sitting at the bottom of the the still. So, but this, this spirit that gets made, this vapour, which gets turned back into liquid, is now a spirit. And the spirit, depending on which part of the distillation process be it the first part or the second part can be anything up to between 50 and 75 percent alcohol by volume so you've taken say a seven percent uh, beer 
and you've turned it into a 70% alcoholic spirit. Dangerous, um, but very, very nice. So the product is usually distilled twice. So the first time round, you don't get quite the um, the strength of which we're looking for. Um, now, all whiskey, any whiskey in which you buy, it must be bottled at 40% alcohol by volume or above. You will not get a 39.9% alcohol by volume whiskey because that doesn't exist. It has to be 40 or above. Okay, so we take the roughly, so say, say an average of what we're getting out of this, this spirit is sitting at roughly about 70% alcohol by volume after the second distillation. The first distillation, uh, what we're getting, we tend to call low wines. So it's, you know, it's, it's low quality or, or low in volume, low in alcoholic volume. So that tends to get distilled again. So that get pumped back in with the rest of the beer, usually added in with a little bit of, of extra of that that beer. I'm using inverted commas here. Uh, redistilled and then it will come out even stronger. So the second time it's referred to as the heart of the distillation process. So this is the good stuff. All right. So the, all of the spirit that we now get, and as I said, this is up to the 75% alcohol by volume stuff, is now called new make spirit, because we're now going to start to make something new. So we take that, now again, if we just think that on average it's about 70% alcohol by volume, what we then do is we take some water and we add more water to this to bring the alcohol percentage down to exactly 62.5% alcohol by volume. We bring it down to exactly that. And from there, the maturation can begin. Now, Scottish single malt whiskey, or Scotch whiskey if you prefer, can only be matured in oak casks. You might refer to them as barrels, but in the industry they're known as casks. So it's only an oak cask. We will never use any other type of wood for making a Scotch whisky. It must be oak. It's one of the whisky making laws. Most casks, therefore, tend to be bought from abroad. Now, we do have some cooperages in Scotland. So a cooperage is where they will make their own casks. We do have a few of those. There's not many of them. I think there might be six um, without researching it, I don't know. Some of this is just coming off the top of my head here. Um, but there aren't many cooperages left in Scotland, or certainly not at whisky distilleries. So we're not really making our own casks. Some distilleries will have a cooperage that will literally just rebuild the casks which are being sent from abroad. So we tend to buy them from places like America, Spain, France, Italy, anywhere that we can really get our hands on a good quality oak cask. So for example, if we buy them from America, American whiskies and bourbons, they have specific laws for making them as well. When they make uh, bourbons or Tennessee whiskies or whatever, the casks in which they use to mature their whiskey can only be used once. So these are brand new. 
So they're knocking down oak trees, they're building brand new virgin casks, they're making Jack Daniels in it. Once they've made Jack Daniels in that one cask, that one cask can never be used again. So we buy them, and we can use them as many times as we want. So Scotch whiskies are matured in ex-bourbon, rum, port, wine, sherry, or even cider casks. That's just to name a few. So when you look on the bottle of a Scotch whisky, you'll probably see bourbon cask finish or sherry cask or um, whatever it's been matured inside. Sometimes you'll find more than one. So it'll be a mixture of uh, whisky taken from a bourbon cask and a sherry cask. For example, one of my uh, early favourites was the Tomatin 12-year-old single malt. That's from uh, ex-bourbon and sherry casks, a mixture of the two. Very nice whiskey as well, I must admit. So the new make goes into the casks completely clear. So how does the whiskey get its colour? So it goes in clear as day. It's like vodka. I actually have a bottle of new make spirit uh, in my house here. Um, I've, I've opened it and I've smelled it. I've never actually tasted it yet. I will get round to it one day. Perhaps we can do that on a live video and see how mental I get. Um, but basically the new make spirit goes into these wooden casks completely clear. So how does it get that sort of caramel colour that everyone knows about? Well, another law to making single malt whiskey is that it must mature in those oak casks for a minimum of three years and one day. Sitting for the three years and one day, for that minimum I should say, of three years and one day inside of that cask, the cask breathes. So if you imagine the cask like a lung, as it gets hot outside, it starts to expand. The wood starts to expand. It lets the liquid into the grains of the wood. And then at night time, it gets a little bit colder. And as it gets colder, the wood starts to tighten up or contracts and it pushes some of that liquid back out. Now you imagine that happening over three years, over 10 years, 15, 20, you're starting to get the gist here. Yeah, so it's taken on the flavours of the wood and uh, and the colours as well of of the wood, but it'll also be taking on similar colours. For example, one of the best examples we can use here is with port. Port is quite a dark, um, kind of red wine colour. Okay, so if you put um, the new make spirit into an ex port cask as it goes in, it'll come out. It'll be quite a deep red colour in comparison to that caramel sort of colour that you're more used to perhaps with Jack Daniels etc. So that's how it gets its colour. Now I mentioned before that it must mature for a minimum of three years and one day. What I want you folks to do, have a little think about that. Why must we add on that extra one day? And uh, what to do is comment on the Twitter, on the on the Facebook or on the Instagram or whatever uh, the post which this is related to Comment on that, folks, and uh, and let me know your thoughts as to why whiskey must mature in Scotland for three years and one day. Why the extra day? Have a think about it. It's not quite as complicated as you would think. So the whiskey goes into the cask, it gets wheeled into warehouses, and it's left there for the minimum of three years and one day. Say, for example, we're leaving it there for ten years. The longest, uh, sorry, the longer that the whiskey is left in the cask to mature, the less whiskey there will be in the cask at the end of the maturation time. Now, this is because 
alcohol will evaporate. So like the fact that alcohol boils at a lower temperature, what um, alcohol evaporates at a lower temperature than water as well. So the length of time it's been sitting in the cask, going through all of these extreme temperature changes and things like that, eventually what will happen is some of this will start to escape and it will start to evaporate. And this is recorded as a loss every year to the whiskey industry, but the whiskey industry is not punished for it. This is recorded as the angel's share. So the angels get their share as it evaporates and up into the sky for the angels to have their little dram on the clouds. So eventually the master distiller and the master blender will believe that the whiskey is ready to uh, put out to the public. They'll take it and they'll pop it into some bottles and they'll sell it to us. So there's a few things that, that, that I do like to kind of put out there when we are talking about whiskey, folks, all right? One of those things is age statements. Do not get snobby about age statements on whiskey, all right? Some people say, I will only drink whiskey that's 30 years old. Well, if you've got three, four, five hundred pounds to spare, uh, good sir, then please send it in my direction. All right, you're not really drinking anything any better. Whiskey is all subjective. All right, I tend to prefer whiskies aged between 12 and um, probably between, there's a few 21s out there that I like. Um, but basically, whiskies aged between 12 years and 21 years, they fall perfectly within my bracket. Now, I cannot afford a 21 year old whiskey every year let alone every five years okay that's a little treat that i'll maybe have every so often but basically what the age statement on a bottle of whiskey means is you pick up you go to the the local store okay and you pick up say a bottle of balvini right we'll just talk about balvini here so you pick yourself up a bottle of balvini 12 year old single malt the 12-year-old single malt on that bottle, what that means is, or the 12 years, what that means is the youngest whiskey in that bottle is 12 years old. All whiskies are blended in some way. So, say for example, just for argument's sake, you'll have 70% of that bottle will be 12-years-old whiskey. Then, say, 10% of that will be 14 year old whiskey another 10 percent of that 15 year old and then just to top it off that extra little 10 percent can be 50 year old whiskey right but they're not going to put on the bottle that it's 50 year old single malt because that's untrue the youngest whiskey that they are selling you is aged 12 years old so that's what an age statement on the bottle means okay so just because it says eight years 10 years that's something quite young and then you see other ones on the shelves that are you know 21 25 30 years old you know don't worry about them don't think that by buying a 12 year old single malt for someone that it's that it's more important to buy the more expensive one it really isn't it really really isn't and the reason why as well i should add here the reason why the older ones tend to be more expensive is as i explained 
the longer you leave the whiskey in the cask for, the more it evaporates, therefore the less that you have to sell. So the older the whiskey is, the more rare that that whiskey is going to be, hence the inflated price tag on there. So once again, folks, don't get snobby about age statements. Uh, with Isla whiskies, I like eight and ten-year-old Isla whiskies. Anything above that, not a huge fan of. Um, but uh, usually, sort of about ten years for the really heavily peated, really heavily smoky whiskies, because um, the whiskey tends to still be young enough that there's a sweetness in there. And I've got a bit of a sweet tooth. I'm not going to lie. With Highland whiskies, I tend to, again, as I mentioned before, start round about the 12 years um, and above after that. So finally, folks, uh, now that you know the process of making a single malt whiskey, let me explain what single malt means. Single malt, it, it's very simple to denote, right? So single malt means that it's made uh, that the product, every every inch of that bottle, every little drop that you will find in that bottle was made in one single distillery from malted barley. That's it. Simple as that. So one single distillery from malted barley. That's what single malt means. Now, there are other different types of whiskies that you can get there. So if you have two or more single malt whiskies from two or more different distilleries that are together in one bottle. These are known as blended malts. So blended malt whiskies, blended single malt whiskies. But they can't be called single malt with their blended malts. Right? A very popular blended malt at this moment in time is called Monkey Shoulder. Very, very nice. It's uh, It's got some Balvini in there. It's got some uh, Glenmorangie and uh, Caninvi, I believe it is. Very, very nice whiskey. Very Even for sipping, it's uh, good as well if you um, prefer to add a little something to your whiskey. And uh, finally, another one is uh, blended whiskies. Right? You can also get something called a blended whiskey. Now, blended whiskey um, are not made using malted barley. Okay, so the process is not using malted barley uh, whatsoever. Um First of all, they start off making... Uh, so the same process that we went through before, but instead of using malted barley, they will use another grain. For example, corn, like what uh, they use in the US. So they'll make a grain spirit, not a whiskey, a grain spirit. So it's basically the, the moonshine, if you will, the, 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 the new make spirit that they get from using the corn. They add that into a bottle. So once again, for um, argument's sake, we'll use... 60% of your bottle of blended whiskey, so that could be uh, Famous Grouse, it could be Bells, Johnny Walker, these are all blended whiskies, so 60% of that is an inferior um, grain whiskey. Now, inferior grain is just what the, the industry, I suppose, would call it. So 60% of that bottle is grain whiskey, and uh, the other 40% is made up of uh, a mixture of up to 50 different types of single malt whiskies. Um, and they're only adding those little drops of single malt whiskies here and there just to add the colour and flavour. It's not, or it tends not to be matured in a cask for any length of time. 
It's also very highly likely that something called E150A, so Echo 150-Alpha, better known to most of us as caramel food colouring, will be added to make the bottle appear more appealing. So those last two that I mentioned, single malts, what can you have in a single malt? Everyone always asks that, so we'll come to that one last. In terms of your blended whiskies and blended malt whiskies, if the bottle says blended on it, you can do with that whatever you want. You buy that bottle, you can immediately walk out the shop and throw it on the floor if you want to. We don't really care about them. There are nice blended malts out there, there are nice blended whiskies out there, but really the cream of the crop is the single malts. Um, in terms of blended whiskey, there's a couple out there that I like. And I like. Um, there's one called McNamara, which is made by the Gallic uh, whiskies on the Isle of Skye, or sold by the Gallic whiskies on the Isle of Skye. I'm not quite sure exactly where it's made. Um, Shavake as well, uh, which is very nice, same company, the Gallic Whiskies. In terms of blended malts, I, I can't really recommend any more than Monkey Shoulder. Honestly, it's one of the best. Um, so with them, you can have ice, you can have water, you can put lemonade in them, you could add them into any cocktail which you fancy, um, Coca-Cola, ginger beer, whatever. When it comes to single malt, folks, there's only one thing you should ever put into a single malt, and that is water. And by water, I mean a drop of water. If you really, really want to, two drops of water. Every drop of water that you add into a glass of whiskey is called an angel's tear, because they're crying at the fact that you need to water this wonderful spirit down any further. Ice. Now, this is where I enter into personal uh, opinion territory right about now. The reason why I do not like um, putting ice into single malt whiskey is, um, again, we'll take a scenario. Okay, You go to McDonald's, you get yourself a nice Coca-Cola or Fanta. I, I'm a Pepsi man, so... I would need to go to KFC for that. So let's go to KFC. We'll get ourselves a, a large Pepsi Max. Okay. Now, drinking it without the ice, it will taste the same all the way down to the bottom, apart from the fact it will get a little less carbonated. However, I add ice to that. Ten minutes later, my Pepsi Max has started to be watered down. I forget about it. And half an hour after that, basically my Pepsi now tastes like Pepsi that I've put half a gallon of water into, which is not a particularly nice taste. So when you think about that with whiskey, you put even one single block of ice into a glass of whiskey and you're taking your time with it, sipping and sipping and sipping. Even if you're sipping it over the course of 5-10 minutes, too much water is getting released into that whiskey. By the time you get down to your last little sips, it's just going to taste like watered-down whiskey. It's not going to taste like uh, whiskey with water in it. It's going to taste like watered-down whiskey, uh, which just is not nice, in my opinion. These whiskey stones that apparently you keep them in the fridge are made out of granite or something like that. Uh, if you keep them in the fridge, they're going to get condensation on them. Therefore, it's going to be adding too much water for my liking. So 
what I recommend that you do is when you try a whiskey for the first time or try a new single malt for the first time, uh, even if you're a seasoned drinker, always try your first sip. Always try it. So you sip it three times. So you take one sip, place it down on the counter and leave it for a minute or so. Let it work on your palate. Then take a second sip, place it back down on the table. Don't do anything to it. Let uh, then you start to get the flavours, you know. Then you start to taste things. Then on your third sip, if it's still a bit too like, mm, no, I don't know about this, add a little drop of water in. Now there's two easy ways to do this in a bar, especially if you're in a bar, even if you're at home. If you've got a straw, get a glass of water and then get, uh, you know, place your finger, over, place the straw into the water, and place your finger over the top of the straw, and then plop it into the glass. Otherwise, the best way of doing it is with your finger. Take a finger and dip it into a glass of water. Bring your finger straight up. You will have one perfectly formed um, drop of water on the end of your finger. Bring it over your glass. Flick your finger against the edge of the glass. And then you'll get your one perfect drop of water. Swirl the glass around. Leave it for about a minute before taking your next three sips. And if you still think that you need to add a little bit more water in, add it in one drop at a time. So add as many drops in as you want, but start off with none. Work your way to one. And then what you'll start to find is you'll start to find that when you pick up that bottle of uh, go back to the Tamatin 12, one of my favourites. So when you pick up that bottle of Tamatin 12-year-old single malt and you pour it into the glass, you've had it numerous times before and you know, okay, with the Tamatin 12, you like three drops of water in that. As soon as you pour it, three drops in and that's you. You've got your perfect dram of whiskey every single time and it's not watering down with melting ice. Tasting absolutely revolting. In terms of mixing with cocktails, don't use single malts. Please don't use single malts. It's probably the nicest way I can do. It. But if you buy, if you you buy a bottle of single malt whiskey, it's yours. You can do with it uh, as you wish. It's yours to do as you wish with it. Anyway, folks, that's uh, again a good forty odd minutes talking about whiskey. That's probably a record for me in terms of the least amount of time that I would talk about whiskey. And to be honest, there's a lot more I can go into. I would normally start giving little recommendations, but I do recommend those ones. Uh, so I mentioned Tamatin, twelve year old single malt, lovely, lovely uh, single malt there. Um, there was the monkey shoulder that I mentioned, Balvini 12 year old, um, check out the Balvini 14 year old Caribbean rum cask, that stuff is like juice, um, that stuff is the water of life, it's very very easy to drink, um, and a little expensive, uh, around about 50 or 60 pounds a bottle, um, don't know what that's going to be uh, elsewhere. So anyway, folks, um, we'll uh, we'll leave that one there for just now. I just want to again thank you very much for listening. Thank you to those of you who are uh, sharing the podcast. Again, once you've listened to the podcast or before you listen to the next episode, please, please, please share uh, online, uh, on Facebook, of course. Uh, so all of these links can be found at uh, the uh, so Scott History Pod. I'm hoping to have a website or basically a web page 
that will have the RSS details for the podcast. So you can basically go to the web page and find a link to every single place that this podcast is put out on because I'm now uh, fully up on the Acast. So Acast uh, distributes to not just Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts but to places like iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Google Play I think even, uh, just hundreds and hundreds of different places that's why I decided to go for that. To those of you who are um, uh, pledging on the Patreon every single month that's all due to you folks um, helping to pay for that. That's uh, that's running at about a hundred and sixty pounds, I think. Um, thankfully, it's for a full year, but I've been saving up um, over the last few months. I put a little bit of my extra money in there, but basically it's all paid up until uh, for the rest of the year. So, so, so there you go, folks. I'm not going anywhere uh, at least until that uh, <laughs> until that deals up. Um, next year, but uh, I'm only joking. Uh, so basically, the podcast will always be available, uh, no matter where. So if you are listening to this on, say, Spotify, but you prefer listening on i I Love Radio or Acast Player, even um, just have a search now for uh, on your favourite podcasting uh, place. Uh, search on there for the Scottish History Podcast. And hopefully, fingers crossed, it should be there. And if it's not, send me a message and I will um, see if we can get it put on that platform. Um, just uh, just let me know. So I mentioned the Patreon there, folks. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, um, Patreon, Patreon, whatever you want to call it, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Scott History Pod. You can, uh, if you enjoy the podcast and the content that I'm putting out here, you can pledge to me. Uh, every single month um, there's only two tiers there's the affordable tier which is just one pound per month Uh, I believe it now automatically um, so if you're in uh, the US for example I believe it automatically is one dollar so no matter where you are it'll be one or three Um, I'm never going to have it any more than that and the reason being is because you know I like um, some of yourselves um, might not want to, you know, pledge any more than that. If you do want to pledge more than that, though, folks, let me know, and uh, I'd be more than happy um, to 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 do that. But at the end of the day, you know, the Patreon or Patreon is basically there just to cover the costs um, of the podcast. Hopefully, very soon, I'm going to start getting out and about as well. Um, so that will also help with like traveling costs and trying to do some uh, field recordings you know I, I want to there's a couple of places nearby uh, where I live that I would like to start off and give that a try and then hopefully go further afield as uh, as things uh, progress uh, so anyway folks uh, Facebook so, so facebook.com forward slash Scott History Pod Twitter is at Scott History Pod Instagram Scott History Pod um, the Acast link I'll post underneath uh, this so wherever you're listening to again Spotify it'll come up in the description there we're on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Google, Google Play Google Podcasts etc as I say um, and many many more um, so folks uh, once again thank you very much for listening this has uh, again been another long podcast Uh, because I just start rambling when I get into it. Uh, But once again, folks, thank you very much for your support. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you again next time.